Good evening, everyone. On behalf of our CEO, Carla Hayden, I'm Roswell Sinem, Communications Director here at the Pratt Library, and I would like to welcome everyone here to the Central Library. And we are very pleased to have all of you here for another wonderful edition of our Brown Lecture Series. Tonight, we're taking you to the fast lane. Our special guest is not only an accomplished pilot, but is the president of the Miller Racing Group. Now he's also an accomplished writer. We are honored to have here tonight Leonard T. Miller. Tonight's lecture is made possible by the generous gift from the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Family Foundation. Their generosity and support to the Pratt Library is unmeasurable. Because of their gift, the Brown Lecture Series has hosted many best-selling and award-winning authors through the years. To introduce our special guest tonight is a good friend of our special guest and a new friend of the Pratt Library. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Parker, Muldrow, and Associates. So please welcome to the Central Library, Mr. Neil Muldrow II. Good evening, all. I've been given the opportunity to introduce a young man who is an outstanding young man. But before I introduce him, I would like to acknowledge the presence of his dad, <clears throat> who had a speaking engagement tonight before all of this, and he was talking only to me. <laughs> and I enjoyed every minute of it. I'd like to introduce Leonard Miller, the Elder. It really gives me a pleasure to be here this evening <clears throat> to introduce Leonard T. Miller, the younger, uh, who's a graduate of Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. Lenny had a desire to fly at an early age. And he started that around age 14, and he had a former Tuskegee Airman as an instructor. He earned his pilot's license, and while he was doing that, he was a salesman for Frito-Lay in uh, New Jersey. Following that, he did what we see on TV. They, they run around with uh, helicopters now. But he was flying a Cessna and giving uh, traffic reports there in Jersey as he went along. From that, he graduated to, well, before he graduated to uh, Allegheny Airlines, he was flying for the flight group, which, interestingly enough, only gave him night flights. He never saw the day while he was flying. I don't know what that was all about, but anyway, out of that, his father sued somebody. I don't know. He began to work for Allegheny Airlines, flying uh, short, shorts at 360, on a regional basis and flying to national airports in the Northeast United States. From there, he graduated to United Airlines, flying a DC-10 as he started out as a flight engineer. Now he flies, he's flown 737s, 757, 767s, and 777s. And interesting enough, he says when they fly the big planes, they always require four pilots. Because anytime you fly over 12 hours, you have to have four pilots. So they have um, bunk beds and silk pajamas and all of that, he was saying, uh, for the ones who are sleeping and not working. But interesting enough, while all of this was going on uh, in his flying, he was very interested. His dad was getting involved in stock car racing, better known as NASCAR as we know it today. And fighting a real fight, and you really have to know, Lynn. Miller the senior, or the elder, he had to fight a hard battle 
to enter into that sport. And it took a lot of money. He's rich, so he was okay. But, but while that was going on, Lenny became interested in NASCAR, and they were the first African-American NASCAR owners. And they won track championships. One story in uh, Lynn's book about Silent Thunder that he wrote, he said that, um, you know, you always have the beauty queen who comes up and kisses the winner, and they get the trophy. Well, the night they won somewhere down south, they didn't, the beauty queen didn't show up, nor did the trophy. So, but at any rate, moving ahead with the sports car racing, NASCAR to be exact, Lenny's father wrote Silent Thunder, the first book. And Leonard, the younger, has written another book, which you have tonight, which it really details a lot about the history of NASCAR and African Americans and what the goal is to get more in. There's a lot we can say about we can say about the Millers and particularly young Lenny and what he's doing, but I'm gonna let you let him tell you what the book is all about and his history. And if we'd like to, at this time to welcome Leonard T. Miller. Thank you, uh, Mr. Muldrow, for the introduction and the Pratt Library for having me out this evening. Once again, my book, uh, Racing Wild Black, is a somewhat of a sequel of my dad's book, uh, Silent Thunder, um, which my father's book car carries uh, the years 1950s to the early 90s, and then my book uh, continues where he left off, uh, which is early uh, 1993 to 2007. And the purpose of the book uh, and what uh, encouraged me to write it was there's been about 100, at least 100 articles evaluating why uh, there are not many, if any, at times, African Americans in auto racing in general, and especially uh, NASCAR, since it is, has exploded in the uh, early 90s. And uh, a lot of those articles, I mean, it, it get, goes back to some of the statements Jimmy the Greek made about football players that blacks are, you know, physically have, a, have an advantage to play stick-and-ball sports, and, uh, and whites have uh, an advantage over technical skills and mechanical skills, um, all the way to African-Americans don't pay their dues in the sport. And even in the back of my book, uh, which I'll get into later, uh, I give a chronological outline of our history or African-American history started in 1910 that's documented uh, all the way to date with a lot of uh, different achievements around the country. Um, but my book, we start out uh, mainly as a default with NASCAR. Uh, my father's book, again, covers IndyCar racing and formula racing, which I grew up. I, I'm second generation. I grew up with my uh, father owning a car in the 1972 Indianapolis 500. Uh, he placed the car in the Formula 5000 uh, ranks, uh, and these cars are built in, in England. And he started Black American Racers uh, in the 70s with African American driver Benny Scott, who was from uh, Los Angeles. Well, they they made it in 1975. They were ranked in the top 60 teams in the world. And they competed in the first Long Beach Grand Prix in 1975. 
against drivers uh, from around the world, namely uh, Jody Schechter from South Africa, uh, Brian Redman from England, and most people have heard of Mario Andretti and the Unser brothers, Al Unser and Bobby Unser, uh, in America. And those cars were very sophisticated. Uh, top speeds were 210 miles an hour. Uh, you definitely had to have a corporate sponsor uh, to compete at, at that level. And my father's black American racers, they were sponsored by Viceroy Cigarette Brand, which at the time was owned by Brown and Williamson Tobacco, which has been uh, bought out by R.J. Reynolds, I think about eight years ago. So growing up as a kid, watching uh, an African-American-owned team uh, race against some of the top teams in the world at those speeds with that type of technology, I didn't have any psychological barriers that that you can achieve anything as an African-American. So as my father and I, uh, as Benny Scott, they lost the sponsorship in the 1976 after being inducted into the Black Athletes Hall of Fame in New York, um, which Bill Cosby was the MC that night when they were inducted. Uh, the sponsorship went away for internal corporate reasons, and we had to start all over again. So with the explosion of NASCAR in the late 80s, when non-automotive sponsors came into the sport, everyone expects the oil companies to be there, the spark plug companies, tire and rubber, you know, gas and oil. Um, but in NASCAR, they started to get non-automotive sponsors, like consumer product companies like Procter & Gamble, uh, candy bar companies, and things like that. So when my father and I would propose... IndyCar racing, all the corporations wanted to go NASCAR because it was exploding. All their competitors were jumping in and spending a lot of money. And today, at the top levels of NASCAR, you're talking 20 to $30 million a year for sponsorship. Um, so our road racing and IndyCar proposals in the late 80s, early 90s, were kind of tossed to the side, and we were kind of forced to go NASCAR if we wanted to race. So we usually have scouts around the country to locate uh, any African-American driver that's racing from coast to coast, and usually there's either zero or maybe two or three at any one time. And we even had a second-generation uh, Jewish uh, racing promoter, Joe Gerber. Uh, he would uh, visit a lot of small grassroots racetracks around the country and he gave us a call one night or my father a call one night very late at midnight after the races in Massachusetts says I have a black kid up here uh, Chris Woods uh, he's like 22 years old he's winning races uh, he's ready to go NASCAR got you I, we got your man so my father uh got in a, an airplane uh, owned by Hank Henderson, who owned a business in New Jersey, to fly up from New Jersey to Massachusetts to meet this uh, Chris Woods. So he was definitely a winner. He had the right look. Um, he was African-American with a JFK accent, <laughs> 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 which, which really stuck out like a sore thumb when we got him down in North Carolina. They were really confused. Uh, but anyway, we, we checked him out, and, and he was a good driver. Um, and everyone talks about NASCAR, which it is. It's good old boys, um, you know, very southern. Uh, people use the word redneck, uh, you know, which it is. Uh, but it's also a class issue because Chris Woods had the same problems and same challenges in Massachusetts that he did in, in North Carolina. He won a race one night, 
and he was very upset after the race because the cars are loaded on open trailers, at least at that grassroots level. And he pulls my father and I to the side and said, uh, looks like someone pissed in my uh, helmet. And he, he was holding, holding his helmet up. And, you know, four or five t- competitors that lost the race to him, you know, urinated into his helmet. And he had to throw the helmet. He threw the helmet out near the river that was near this racetrack. Um, so, I mean, we expect some of that. I mean, maybe not that severe, but you expect some of those challenges. Um, so my father and I, we, what we did, we tried to come up with a program to get him down to North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina is the heart of NASCAR racing. And if you've never been there to look at a race shop in, in today, in present time, the race shops are like museums. Uh, I mean, the inside, the quality of some of the race shops are the same quality of the interior of this library. Um, they're 50,000 to 150,000 square feet. Um, they have uh, ponds on the outside with fountains. They have executive secretary in the front. You don't smell any gas. You don't see any oil or dirt. And there's usually about 20 race cars lined up like matchbox, toy, matchbox toys uh, that are worth over 150000 apiece. And that's, where, that's why the sponsorship, you get into these ranges of 20 to $30 million a year. So it's very corporate. Um, so my father and I, in the early 90s, once we, we identified Chris Woods, we sent him to the Buck Baker Racing School in North Carolina. Um, and he definitely had the talent to race at the, at the top levels. And then we had to come up with proposals and design marketing programs to get the corporate sponsorship. I mean, that's, that was the key. So we start with uh, family connections, people that we knew. Um, we even had an agency and a communication company in Charlotte that specializes in sponsorships um, to identify corporations to go after these sponsors. And in a nutshell, uh, and we've been to 60 corporations, um, and I've been to a lot of meetings, a lot of events, uh, even a couple events on the Queen Elizabeth II out at sea uh, off of Long Island which cost me uh, $13,000 to get on the boat. And then you have undistracted one-on-one time with uh, corporate vice presidents of marketing budgets uh, that, that spanned uh, $5 million to uh, over $100 million a year. And in a nutshell, every time we would present a proposal for marketing to sell products or advertise the service of a certain brand or company, it would go on deaf ears and they, they would actually look at you and say, you know, you guys are African-Americans. You need to go to community affairs or uh, diversity basically to get a handout. And this is not marketing or even a foundation. Sometimes they would send you to the foundation of the company, which is, you know, doles out money for the corporation uh, to nonprofits. And without going into every detail about every meeting, that's what we would run into in a nutshell. And in one case, uh, I went to Texaco, and I'm talking to the vice president of marketing at Texaco, and he had the director of marketing there. And, and at the time, they were in, headquartered in White Plains, New York. Uh, so I flew up to White Plains, um, took a couple months to get, the, uh, to get this scheduled. And I showed them a digital 20-minute presentation of the team, um, all the marketing benefits of having an African-American driver and basically an all-white sport where you, your brand would stand out 
there's so much clutter now in advertising and marketing. I mean, if you look at a race car driver's uniform now, it has like 100 patches and logos on it. And most consumers will tune out because there's too many, uh, too many logos in, in a small space. So I give this digital presentation, and it's about 20 minutes, and both of their arms were folded. They just kind of laid back in their chair like this. They're stunned that I have a digital proposal and presentation that's that sophisticated. So they're in shock and speechless. And then after the presentation, they even asked me where I got the presentation. And it's our own presentation with ourselves as the content of the presentation. And then they proceeded to talk about uh, are you talking to any other sponsors? And I said, yes. And they said, well, which ones? And I'm at Texaco at the corporate headquarters at the decision-making level for marketing. And, I, and they said, well, which one? I said, Procter & Gamble. And they said, well, you probably have better luck at Procter & Gamble because they have more brands. And, and that was, uh, they basically ended the meeting, um, and I was ushered out to the parking lot, and I was in there for maybe 45 minutes uh, tops, and, and then that was it. And here's a company, Texaco. It sponsors race cars over the decades around the world. Uh, Formula One, Indy cars, NASCAR, grassroots, uh, top levels um, of auto racing, motocross, um, you know, everything. So that's what we would go, go through off of the track trying to get the corporate sponsorship. And then in many cases, they'll see that you're African-American and say, uh, do you know... Bob Jones. And I said, no, I don't know Bob Jones. Well, he's an executive here at the corporation. Um, he's the vice president of personnel. I, I said, well, personnel is not going to help us in this case. <laughs> I said, if he's good friends with the vice president of marketing or the chairman of the board, which he may know, I said, I'll, I'll talk with him if he can get me to those individuals. Um, and that was another curveball or a diversion that we were thrown into. And then that mobile oil, not even too long ago, like five years ago at mobile oil, um, and again, mobile oil sponsors race cars, motorcycles, everything with an engine, boats, uh, you know, around the world. Their budget's maybe $200 million a year just for auto racing and motorsports. We go through our presentation, and we always do this, and we don't, beg. We're not asking for a handout. It's a, it's a business proposal, and we point out the advantages of having an African-American team right now in, in NASCAR. And they'll agree, our, our presentation is, is such, so logical and detailed, and we spell out examples, and we, we study the company. I mean, every, if you go to Coca-Cola, the presentation's different than if you go to Mobile Oil or... Uh, uh, you know, Procter & Gamble. They'll agree with everything, and then at Mobile Oil, they basically said, um, look, our budgets are expended, and maybe you can come back next year. And in so many words, in a very sophisticated way, don't challenge us on this because we donated a million dollars to the Martin Luther King statue in Washington, D.C. Um, so if you take a big race team... Um, like I heard someone in here likes Jimmy Johnson, which is a Hendrick team. When they go into a, a corporation or corporation approaches them, they don't bring up uh, nonprofit wings of the company or, say, go to diversity or community affairs. It has to do with marketing um, and advertising and getting, uh, getting a bang for the buck uh, in the marketing and advertising and promotional arena. 
Um, so over and over for 15 years, that's what we would go through in corporate America. And then my book outlines, and you'll see a lot of stories in detail of what we go through on the track. So when we showed up with Chris Woods in 1994 to Concord Motor Speedway, which is a half-mile trioval, just 10 miles away from the big uh, Charlotte Speedway that's, that's televised, the competitors were in shock that we even had a race car. Um, and we even had a small race, tr- uh, race shop that we leased uh, at the racetrack. They had an actual complex with about 15 or 20 race shops uh, they had a go-kart track, and they had a half-mile uh, racetrack. With even, they had VIP suites that were climate-controlled. So it was kind of like going to a, a single-A or a triple-A baseball arena for auto racing. And a lot of big stars, including uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. Um, and other big names um, that are out there now, started at the Concord Motor Speedway because it was right there in Charlotte in the, in the heart of uh, racing country. Um, so when we showed up with uh, Chris Woods, African-American, no one knows us, and he has this JFK accent, <laughs> the competitors are in shock. And then, and then we, uh, most racetracks, when we show up initially and they don't know who we are, what our backgrounds are, you would hear in earshot people saying, and it's like a broken record from racetrack to racetrack, they've taken over golf, they got Tiger Woods, they got Venus Williams, Serena Williams, or, or making a killing in tennis. Now we've lost this, and you'll see their heads drop. <laughs> uh, which, uh, which developed a lot of animosity on the racetrack. I mean, that, uh, stock car racing is a contact sport. I mean, you rub fenders, you're bumper-to-bumper, you're door-to-door. So it led to a lot of wrecks. Uh, with Chris Woods, uh, which put him in more harm than, than it already is uh, in auto racing. And then going back to corpor- corporations, when we would go into detail about corporate sponsorship, my father and I would put in 30 to 50% more in the budget on the line item for crash damage. All race cars crash. But since we were going to be deliberately crashed, we wanted a second car or enough spares and enough infrastructure if that meant two mechanics and running two shifts to prepare the car for the next week. In grassroots auto racing from March to October, you race pretty much every Saturday night from March to October. So if you're crashed on a Saturday night and it's almost a total or severe damage, it's going to take you every bit of the five days to prepare repair the car, and prep the car again to race that Saturday night. And the short track racers knew that. They're like, we wreck them hard enough, they're going to miss a race. And if you start missing races, you won't accumulate points for the championship at the end of the year. So even if you're in last place, I'll just make an example. Let's say you get one point just for being in 30th place. If you miss the race, you're not going to get any points that accumulate to the end of the year for a championship. So they're the type of challenges I describe in the book in a story form. And the book's not all uh, technical or uh, nuts and bolts and and gas and oil. It goes over the social challenges of what my father and I went through. And then some of the the things we came up with to circumnavigate these challenges. 
Uh, we would take uh, white executives uh, to corporations. Uh, we took a friend of ours, Sean Car Carberry, uh, who's a, a, a prominent uh, individual in the state of Massachusetts, all the way to the governor's office. Uh, we took him into an underwear company, Jockey, Jockey Underwear. Uh, sorry, it was Jockey Underwear that's outside of Milwaukee. Um, so we would have this presence uh, to try to keep the issue of going to community affairs and diversity off of the table. We would bring in a white executive, and it, and it did that. They, they talked a little bit more serious about our proposal and our endeavors to get African-American drivers in racing. Uh, when we went to uh, Jockey, uh, Fruit of the Loom was in drag racing, and they were spending at the time, this is in the early 90s, about $5 million a year or per season in drag racing. So we gave that an example to say, hey, your competitor's out here doing XYZ in auto racing, and, um, and that really piqued their interest. Um, and they were interested, and we did have a serious meeting, but at the end of the day, weeks later, they wanted to go towards IndyCar racing and not stock car racing. They thought jockey underwear was, I guess, high-end, <laughs> and, and they wanted to be with the more sophisticated uh, upper echelon demographic than, the, uh, than stock car racing with, with the good old boys. And they actually did that. They sponsored Dan Gurney at the time, uh, his team, for two or three years. Uh, Jockey International sponsored that team. So the meeting ended, uh, we were handed about uh, 30 <laughs> discount tickets to buy underwear at the, uh, at, the, at the outlet that was near, nearby uh, the corporate headquarters. So we bought a lot of underwear back on the airplane <laughs> from Milwaukee back to Philadelphia, and I was in Washington, and John Carberry was in Boston. So two months later, my father asked... Uh, uh, Mr. Carberry, you know, how's your underwear doing? <laughs> he said they went with a high-end sponsorship with IndyCar Racing, saying their underwear is upper echelon, but my underwear is getting springing holes in it. After, like, two washing, I, washings, I, I gave my underwear to the dog. I think that was uh, edited out of the book, uh, but there's stories, stories like that in the book. Um, and in, in, in recent times, in the last four or five years, um, still there's been a big outcry of why African Americans are not in the sport and they were not interested in the sport. But it really just gets down to the, the money and resources. In any kind of auto racing, in amateur auto racing, I mean, you need $100,000 just to show up because um, I think there was a racer in here with the Alfa Romeos. I mean... You know, if you have two Alfa Romeos and if they had to be towed and you had a cheap uh, open-wheel trailer and a truck and tools and spares, I mean, it's, it's $100,000 before you, before you get started. So if you're trying to develop a driver, it, it may take over a million, two million dollars in a three- to five-year period to develop that driver just to see if he has what it takes. And then many drivers don't have what it takes, so they reach a plateau and they go away. They, they, they do something else or choose another career, and then that million or two million dollars is, is gone. Um, so that's what we've gone through on and off the track. And uh, Mr. Muldrow in the introduction mentioned about the trophy queen. 
uh, situation that we had, and that was um, in July 7, 2001. We were sponsored by Dr. Pepper uh, for three years, from 2001 to 2003. Uh, So we went down to this racetrack in Coastal Plains, North Carolina, which is just west of Camp Lejeune, the shoreline in North Carolina. We went down there, and there's still cotton fields down there (laughs) and everything, and we roll into the racetrack. Everyone's in shock, and at the time, our driver was Morty Buckles, and uh, he qualified. I can't remember exactly where he qualified. He qualified in the first two rows out of about 30 cars. And there's a 100-lap race, and Morty passes the uh, track household name shoe-in constant winner at this racetrack on the last lap in the third turn, and they were wheel-to-wheel, and then they beat him at the finish line by about eight feet you know, or, or half a car length. So when he won that, won that race, um, the competitors were pumping their fists uh, he went to victory lane. Uh, the second and third place driver surrounded the car. They didn't get out of the car. They were revving their, revving their engines, pumping their fists. The crowd started cheering, you people go home. And there's like 5,000 people uh, in the grandstands. So the car would come around near the finish line to get the trophy from the trophy queen. The trophy queen, she's dressed up you know, in a, in a skin-tight uh, skirt, high heels. The, uh, the track photographer, um, he refused to take any pictures, so he went away. Um, I had my $50 digital camera in my pocket, and I'm on my knees taking a picture of the crew and the driver with the trophy with all these people in the 20 feet behind me saying, you people go home. Uh, we were challenged with fights uh the deputies had to come over there was about six of them and this is at night it's on a saturday night at 10 in the evening 11 o'clock in the evening and then we were offered a police escort to get back to our cars Uh, and we said no we'll walk out on our own Uh, i mean we were so so uh upset and that was the first time dr pepper uh won a race at any level and they had a car at, at a higher level uh, in NASCAR where they were investing about 5 to $7 million a year at that time. And uh, that was their first corporate win, which they put in their annual report. They put them in their newsletters uh, to corporation in Plano, Texas. And then we won uh, other races. But they're the type of things that we went through on the racetrack um, that I describe in the book. And then another issue my father and I had to deal with with the African-American driver, including Chris Woods that I mentioned um, earlier, a lot of them didn't have fathers at home. They were either divorced or the father was gone, and they were kind of on their own. And to go back to Chris Woods in the early 90s, his parents got divorced and split up, and they left him in the basement at 13 years old with a dead dog. He was raised by the Fuller family in Massachusetts, which was a racing family of, of two, two to three generations. And they raised him from 13 years old till he was 20 years old and could get a job at a dealership You know, after we, we met him. 
So when we took him down to North Carolina, again, off the track, Chris didn't have the social skills and the analytical skills to measure people, and he wore his heart on his sleeve. So he would, uh, he would make friends with people at the racetrack that lived at the trailer park that really wanted to exploit him for, for money, for services on the car. Uh, he was more white-oriented because he was raised by the Fuller family, and he has this JFK accent. So the five, six years my father and I had him down there, he didn't have anywhere to go for Christmas Day. He didn't have anywhere to go Thanksgiving Day. Uh, he would associate with the wrong people, and we would have to come down and undo this. And my father, again, he's living in the Philadelphia area. I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. So we would fly down to Charlotte for almost 10 years um, to maintain our race shop. And we had a, a he's now a friend, a David Miller, who's uh, from North Carolina uh, and white, no, no relation to us. He watched our shop, maintained our shop, set up the race cars, uh, kept an eye on Chris. And then we would check, check in with him like every night in the evening uh, for 10 years of what's happening at the race shop, what's Chris up to, is he on the right track, uh, go over technical issues, of course. Um, and then we would fly down almost every weekend for all the races, my father and I together, and then there were times that we would go uh, individually. And then we were on our own also because most uh, African Americans in the Charlotte area, they knew racing was big, but eh, that's, that's rednecks, good old boys, we're not interested. They didn't even want to come to the racetrack. And some of our African American guests that we invited to Concord, even in the VIP suite where it was safe, they were still uncomfortable. They said, it's, it, it's loud. We don't understand this. It's hot. We're not going to be out of here till midnight. So a lot of times, my father and I, unless if, if we weren't together, we were isolated and on our own in the hotel rooms and driving up and down the roads, and uh, we would leave the racetrack at 11 o'clock to midnight, and we're on the dark roads by ourselves. So we would check into the hotels and then leave Sunday morning, and 95% of the time we would fly and then sometimes we, we would drive down to North Carolina. But it was a very lonely, uh, isolated life because no one understood what we were doing in the African-American community. The mainstream community looked at us as a threat, and they're not going to help us win and win any type of races. Uh, the corporations, we were on our own, and I'll get over into the black male executive uh, challenges that we, we had when we would go to corporations if there was a black male executive that had the power, whether he was on the board of directors or a vice president, to sponsor our team or any black racing team at any level, whether it's a $100,000 level or $20 million level, he would either have an ego and look, look at us as, as if we were challenging their ego because they're supposed to be the star in the corporation and the star up and down the eastern seaboard and not us. So they would uh, go on deaf ears and run away. Or they would be afraid of their uh, subordinates, their peers, and their superiors. And some would even voice, hey, look, I'm making four hundred grand up here and another 400000 in potential bonuses. If I sponsor you guys and you're going to go out there uh, in this arena that's technical and fast-paced and you screw it up, 
that's going to reflect on my signature on the contract, and I'm going to lose my job, my four Mercedes I have in the driveway, and my, and my McMansion. Um, that's what we would, we would run into uh, <laughs> over and over again, you know, 60 corporations. So you end up coming up, you, you end up thinking of unorthodox ways to, you know, how do you get through all of this? Um, and we would try different things. And I mentioned the QE2 two times. I had a friend of mine that was the general manager of international sports licensing for uh, North America, the uh, ISL, they called it. And ISL ended up doing all the marketing for kart or indie car racing in the, in the early 90s um, and managing hundreds of millions of dollars of sponsorships for kart. Um, so I had this uh, friend, uh, Darren Marshall, and he was from the United Kingdom. Um, so he found out a way to get me on the QE2 under his staff because this QE2 arrangement where I would go talk to these corporate executives one-on-one -on -one at a price of $13,000 for three nights out at sea, you had to have a minimum of two executives on that boat representing the company, and the company in this case is Miller Racing Group. So my father and I, we can only afford, we're buying engines, we have other expenses, and we have a budget. So we couldn't afford $26,000, but we could afford $13,000. So Darren Marshall, uh, he elected not to go two years and put me in with his staff of four, because you had to have an even number, a minimum of two, four, and six, and so on, to get on the boat. And then he wrote a check from ISL, their corporate account, for me, and then I just wrote him a racing check for Miller Racing Group to reimburse him the $13,000. So you figure if I'm African-American, I can afford to pay this fee to get on the QE2 and be out at sea. And at night, the meetings were black tie uh, dinner meetings. And again, one-on-one, -on -one, you're not, you don't have to, and these meetings were, um, they were arranged in advance. You match up who you want to speak with and, uh, I would talk to maybe 15 companies in a three-night period out at sea, uh, and even that we would run into the we would run into the to the same problem. Um, talk to McDonald's uh, on the boat, vice president of marketing, and he tried to just divert me from even speaking about auto racing. Even even he even told me how to eat my food. Hey, your dinner's getting cold. Uh, you, you eat up. And then he would try to tell a joke or divert my attention to eat up this hour and a half time. Because most people, because of my father's uh, experience and accomplishments in the 70s and me growing up, I'm very articulate in the world of auto racing as far as how the sport works, the sponsorships work, the technical aspects, the marketing aspects. So any type of... Uh, excuse they would come up with, I always had a solution, a marketing solution. And, they would, and it was so good, they would agree with the solution. So they would have to change the subject totally or get me off of the table. Or, or if, they, if they couldn't come up with any excuse, they would always come up with, hey, we're very interested in, in this, but our fiscal year is up. Um, our budget is uh, expended. We're going to have another budget next year. So come back again the same time next year. 
And then in some certain cases, I would do that, and it was the same story. Come back next year. Come back next year. And then if one company we came back year after year, then they told us the driver was too old. I said, well, if you sponsored us, I said, if you sponsored us three years ago, we'd have already won the Daytona 500, you know, and, uh, and exceeded all your commercial and marketing goals, you know, for the entire corporation around the world. So they, they would say that the driver's too old. Um, so on and off the track, they're the type of things that I outline in, my, uh, in the book, Racing Wild Black. Um, and it's been a lonely road, and I was um, compelled to write the book because this brings up another issue. There's been several, over the decades and even here in recent times, there's been several African-American efforts from phony African-American racers. And I say phony because they see, like all of us in the news, that there's a lot of money in NASCAR. There's 106 uh, Fortune 500 companies that sponsor uh, a NASCAR in some form, whether it's a race team, billboards, or advertising. So we have some sophisticated African-American males that think they're going to make a pot of money by coming into the sport and shouting, hey, look at me, I'm the only one. Of course, they don't do any research on any history or anything. I'm the only one I can bring in uh, an African-American driver or be a car owner. And, you know, in so many words, please give me $20, $30 million so I can compete. And then some of these um, owners, they're aware that my father and I exist. They're aware of Wendell Scott in the past and a few other serious efforts, uh, mostly at the grassroots level. But they're trying to, to get up that ladder and then burn that ladder so they're, they're the only ones. Um, then they'll be asked or, or uh, they'll be asked at times in the media, are there any other competitors? Now, my father and I will know some of these individuals, and they won't mention our names um, at all because they look at us as a threat trying to be the only, and my father and I, never that wasn't our goal to be the only anything. We just wanted to compete as African Americans. We know African Americans can compete in the sport, and from a marketing standpoint, you're at an advantage if you have an African-American driver or a female driver or a Chinese driver at this day and time in NASCAR. So if I didn't write the book, our history and stories and our perspective um, would be lost. Um, so that's, what, that's you know, one of the other reasons uh, that compelled me to write the book. And then NASCAR, they... They'll sh they have a diversity program, too, that's based on a 1980 corporate America template, uh, which is photo ops. Get a couple photos in Ebony and Jet, and we won't get sued, and I'll keep Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton at bay. Uh, and that's, that's, their, that's their program. Um, so the diversity program in NASCAR has existed now for at least seven years, maybe nine years, and they have not churned out one African-American driver that's made it to the top three levels in racing at a sustained uh, time period. There's been some flash in the pan entries, one race, two races, uh, but that's it. No one has raced for two years or three seasons or five seasons um, to date. Um, it's just all flash in the pan. And it's mainly to keep Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson away from the arena. 
And then uh, NASCAR, they politicize the sport. So their diversity program will shout, shout out that they need uh, African-American fans. Um, even though they're still, they've taken down a lot of rebel flags, but still uh, many of them exist, especially if you go to Talladega, Alabama. And, uh, and, and, and I think most African-Americans would be still uncomfortable sitting in the stands. But if you say you want African-American fans, I don't think it's good from a business standpoint and just basic logic to politicize the sport. NASCAR politicizes the sport. Now, you can vote uh, whatever president you want, uh, Republican, Democrat. But if you fly in, and NASCAR has done this at least over the last 15, 20 years, they only fly in the Republican president to the Daytona 500 and give them a, a ceremonial jacket. They get a tour around the racetrack. Air Force One flies into the Daytona airport, which is literally a, two miles from the racetrack. So you can see it. The Air Force One casts a shadow over the racetrack when it lands uh, in Daytona. But they don't invite Bill Clinton. They don't invite President Obama. Um, and then uh, when Obama got in the first, his first term, they had five of the top NASCAR drivers invited to the White House. Jimmy Johnson was one of them. I think Dale Earnhardt Jr. And, you know, Obama's out there glad-handing these drivers and giving them a tour of the White House, Oval Office, you know, tours that most of us wouldn't see. And then Jimmy Johnson, who's one of the best drivers in NASCAR, and he's from California, he was outspoken against Obama in the election to vote for John McCain but yet he gets invited to the White House, and I'm not sure if Obama did his research or they're just saying, well, you know, maybe we can still try to penetrate the NASCAR, you know, Tea Party crowd uh, for votes down the, down the line because that's basically what the NASCAR fans are is Tea Party people with uh, racing hats on. Um, so if you're doing all of that, why would you, how are you going to get African-American fans when, when, it, when it's a fact that 90% of African-Americans vote Democrat. And I'm not saying it's bad to be Republican. I'm just saying if you're saying you need African-American fans, you need to do the right things to attract those fans. Uh, and then 10 years ago, they, they, NASCAR has invited Clarence Thomas to the racetrack. You know, and I, I look at all the networks. I look at CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. And their statistics all show that you know, 95% of African-Americans despise Clarence Thomas. So why would, you, why would you invite him to the track and it, in the same breath you want the African-American race fans? You know, so it doesn't make sense. So I've said these remarks on national TV, on C-SPAN, um, uh, a couple times. NASCAR is aware of my father and I. They even tried to prevent us from speaking uh, in January this year at the Eastern Motor Press Association. Uh, they threaten a president. Uh, Eastern Motor Press Association is a uh, compilation of uh, media and journalist um, personnel and, and people that cover auto racing uh, events from the grassroots to the national level. So f since 1969, they've had a annual convention, and a few thousand of these journalists show up from Florida all the way up to uh, New England. And when they got wind that I was going to speak and the co-author was going to speak, Andrew Simon, who the co-author is from ESPN, the magazine, 
at this event in January. They threatened the president and say, if you let them speak, your job's in jeopardy, and we're going to pull our sponsorship from the Eastern Motor Press Association. Um, so he has known my father for 35 years, since 1969, so he let us speak. Um, and we, we spoke on the book, just like I'm speaking in front of you. Um, and there was a NASCAR rep, even in the uh, communications rep, in the audience. And he had his arms crossed, and he was pouting and everything when I talked. And, uh, uh, but that's, that's what we go through. That's what we go through in racing. Um, you'll see in the back of the book, I mentioned that uh, African-American history goes back to 1910. The first African-American driver documented in America is uh, Jack Johnson the heavy first black heavyweight champion in America. He did match races against Barney Oldfield um, back at 1910 on a horse track, uh, Sheep, Sheepshead Bay, New York. Um, in 1910, there's a photograph of him in some periodicals um, and some docu documentation. Uh, one of the big heroes before World War II was Roger Jack. Roger Jack used to rake Barney Oldfield out of the way. Uh, it's documented in newspapers. I have some of the articles in the 1920s and 30s at a racetrack that used to, where SeaWorld is now in San Diego, used to be a prominent auto racing track in the 1920s and 30s. And Rajo Jack would race there, and he would race coast to coast. Also, Rajo Jack, he was one of the first race car drivers to have a truck or i should say a trailer like a flatbed truck to tow the race car to the track so you didn't have to drive the car to the track or or tow the tow the race car behind another car or truck and put wear and tear on it on the way to the racetrack he was one of the first to bring a race car uh, to the track that was towed and then there's stories that are documented. My father and I know his mechanic, who's in his mid-90s right now in Southern California. He used to work on Rajo Jack's cars in the 20s and 30s, all the way into after World War II. He would work, he would, as a mechanic, he would work on the car on the back of this flatbed truck going into the Bay Area in the 20s and 30s while Rajo Jack um, or Rajo Jack's wife drove the truck at night and he would have flashlights and tools and work on the car. Now this is before the San Mateo Bridge was built and a Golden Gate Bridge was, was under construction. The pylons were going in for the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, so African American history goes back in auto racing goes back to 1910. Uh, this rich history pre-World War II, post-World War II, all the way to date and one knows about it. And um, I give a chronological uh, listing of that history in the back of Racing Wild Black to reinforce my contemporary story that African Americans can win in auto racing. It's just a matter of getting the resources. Because we see, and I don't know if everyone follows everything about auto racing, but you have Lewis Hamilton in Europe who, uh, who has a Caribbean background and was pretty much raised at least half his childhood in the United Kingdom. And he's the, uh, I think it's 2008, uh, world champion. Uh, but, you know, he has the resources that everyone else has, if not more, uh, in Formula One racing, which is the most sophisticated racing and the most competitive racing in the world because uh, they race on the streets of Monaco and other, uh, other uh, very challenging road courses. 
So in a nutshell, I think most people have bought the book. I don't want to give away all the stories. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good read. It reads like a novel. It's designed for a person to read that's not uh, familiar with auto racing, so it's not a lot of nuts and bolts and technical diagrams, uh, which a lot of auto racing books are. Uh, NASCAR books, there's, there's, there's thousands of NASCAR books that have been written uh, over the years, but since that's a product of lower education, most of the books just have pictures in them and are just cocktail table, table books. Racing Wild Black will definitely give you an education and open your eyes on what, uh, not only what my father and I have accomplished, there's been some other teams similar to ours at our level that have been out there uh, you know, traveling the lonely road, literally on the roads to racetracks in the hotel by yourself, uh, fighting corporate America, coming up with unorthodox methods to break through uh, their obstacles. So uh, thanks for coming out. If you have any questions, I'll, I'll answer. Given your comments on NASCAR's ambivalence toward blacks, why is it important for us to embrace NASCAR? It's not important to embrace NASCAR itself. I mean, NASCAR uh, in America is the most popular racing series now in, in, in the country. So like I said before, my father and I tried to go IndyCar racing. I mean, we, try, we, don't, we didn't want to go to NASCAR. We wanted to go to IndyCar racing where most people in this room would be very comfortable at, a, at an IndyCar event. So it forced us to go NASCAR if we wanted to race because the sponsorships, they don't want to, it's much more difficult to, to get a sponsorship in IndyCar racing. Oh, the sal uh, father wanted me to bring up uh, just some of the quick facts on salaries in NASCAR. Uh, NASCAR chief mechanics at the top teams, uh, no college education or making a million dollars a year. Uh, when, you're, when you're scanning through the channels at home, trying to find a history channel or uh, CNN, and you stumble across a NASCAR race, and you see the uh, pit crew come over the wall to change the tires, and you hear the loud sound of the impact wrench. Again, no education. Uh, the top teams are making 125000 a year. Um, there's schools and even training for, now they're even using athletes for some of the pit stops is very, or tire wheel changers, it's very specialized. But they're the kind of salaries um, that, uh, that they're making in NASCAR at the top levels, the top teams. Thank you. I have a comment uh, first, and that is to thank you for uh, taking the time to give the synopsis of, of your book as well as chronicling your experience uh, raising while black. Question, how is it that you sustain yourselves financially uh, in meeting the challenges that you have? Uh, secondly, uh, what, where, and, uh, where are you racing now? Yeah, we stopped racing uh, in 2007 because of a lack of sponsorship. And your question comes up uh, frequently. Um, well, before I was married and I had total control of the checkbook, <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could take it down to zeros uh, and, and, and risk it all. Uh, and I did at points. My, my father and I did. When we started out with Chris Woods, when I was describing the early 90s, we started out with our own money. 
Like I would buy the engine for $20,000. My father would buy the car for 20000 and then we would start from there. And then I would try to get these corporate sponsors because you can, you can go broke racing pretty quick. But we've, we've spent our own personal money, and there's been times that were very lean and almost broke. Um, and I thought I was young enough at the time in the early 90s to you know, accumulate the, the money back at some point. Um, but I, like I said earlier, I don't have a psychological barrier that it's impossible because my father, they went to the Indy 500 and the Long Beach Grand Prix that's much more sophisticated and expensive than NASCAR racing. So I never thought it was impossible, even at times, there are times you go to bed at night, you know, should I quit? How about a black sponsorship, um, black owned products, <laughs> uh, uh, Black athletes yeah, I could. with these multi-million dollar uh, 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 yeah. contracts that don't yeah. have anything to do with their money but yeah, well, buy I, cars. Yeah, I have, a, I have a story, and I can tell you this story because it was edited out of the book. Right here in Baltimore, there was an oil company uh, called OMO Petroleum that was African-American owned. And that was in uh, – OMO still exists, but uh, this was back in uh, – 2004 and we had a female driver white female driver in the grassroots of nascar so the ceo and owner of omo petroleum right here in baltimore was so ecstatic that we have an african-american team he understood what what that meant um he was going to retail some oil products car car oils um and other applications for oil at the consumer level so he said, this would be great to uh, advertise my uh, company and, and products, OMO Petroleum. And you're at a level that I can still afford. And as my company grows, I'll grow with you right up to the top of NASCAR over a period of time. So he had some contracts at the time with FedEx to do, uh, maintain some of the oil for their trucks at BWI Airport. He had some contracts to maintain. Uh, to furnish oil for CX, CSX Railroad, which I think one of the terminals was here and other places up and down the East Coast, so a lot of gallons of oil. And he sponsored us. Uh, we had OMO Petroleum on the car uh, for like a half a year in 2004 on the trailer, and, and we thought uh, we were on our way. So when FedEx, who's a NASCAR sponsor and even sponsored Formula One cars over in Europe, in a FedEx decal that's two feet long uh, in Formula One, it's like $75 million. That's what the sponsorship is for that much real estate on the car, just two feet. So at Olmo Petroleum, so he's at a, uh, at a conference or at a business meeting. He's got CSX Railroad there, FedEx, and some other Fortune 500 companies that he's working with and then looking for a more potential business. He was so proud, he started showing our, what they call a hero card that has a picture of the team and the driver on the car. So it says Miller Racing Group, OMO Petroleum on the car, which is an industry standard uh, item in uh, auto racing. So when FedEx, CSX Railroad, other companies uh, saw this, they're like, are you using your profits to sponsor uh, cars like this? And uh, they actually... And I, I can't say it was FedEx or CSX specifically, but some of the companies that he had withdrew their contracts from OMO Petroleum. 
So that stifled some of his revenue, and then he had to pull our sponsorship after half a season. I was just wondering what you thought about the reality um, program on BET, Changing Lanes. Yeah, change. I saw uh, one episode. I think my father and I saw others. It's a it's a show, you know, S H O W show. You know, look it up in the dictionary. Um, it, it's 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 entertainment. I'm not to say I'm not saying that that's not going to catapult some of these drivers on the show into big time racing. It's possible that one or two have the talent on that show to make it. But the true test is until you see the drivers on that show in the top three levels of NASCAR racing, and you see them being competitive, not running in the back, because all that's been done before. They would have to lead laps, challenge for the lead, win races, win championships, and the show has done its job. But right now, and not knowing what, looking in a crystal ball at the future, I just see the show being a benefit for the executive producer of the show. And I know one of them is Max Siegel, and there may be others, that they've just carved a career out and a nice resume to be in show business. With the new uh, surge for going green, do you see any future opportunities maybe to uh, find sponsorship through alternative uh, uh, resources such as uh, diesel fuel racing, such as Audi does, or um, electric car racing, just something new to you know get into the arena once again with sponsorship? Yeah, there are other opportunities. I know Racing Green is more popular over in IndyCar racing. I think they use a methanol or another type of gas that's more green than petroleum-based fuels. Um, I was going to even have a joke like at the end of the book that when we see an African-American driver, and, and NASCAR has all these different, they call them errors, like the, the old old era, the... I forget some of the other titles. Uh, the modern era, which they're in now, I see an African-American driver maybe winning a championship in the electric era because the cars won't make any noise. Nobody will care. And it'll be a lot cheaper to maintain 20 batteries on a car, on an electric car, so more competitors will be able to compete, you know, even white competitors. So maybe if they go electric car, which that's coming in the future, where electric cars will dominate, uh, you know, fuel-powered cars maybe 20, 30 years ago from now, um, the black driver will win a championship in NASCAR with an electric car because the 20 batteries don't cost that much, and then you got the sheet metal, and then the cost will come down, and we'll be able to compete. So the, the, the black driver will win in the electric car era, you know, 20 years from now. And I want to turn the meeting over to Judy Cooper at this time, and, uh, and in the future we'll let his daddy speak. <laughs> Welcome to Baltimore. Thank you, so Judy. Thank you again, Lenny and Mr. Miller. <laughs>